In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. John chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Please be seated. When I started writing this sermon, something about the gospel lesson kept bringing to mind the petition from the great litany that goes like this, to strengthen those who stand, to encourage the faint-hearted, to raise up those who fall, and finally to beat down Satan under our feet. We beseech you to hear us, good Lord. I think this gospel lesson is a cathartic moment for many of us. I find myself often praying for the downfall of the spiritual powers set against the church, and this image of Jesus as a scourge against all who are where they ought not be comes to mind readily. It is the only account which is captured in all four Gospels which shows Jesus administering a holy physical remedy to what seems on the surface to not be a very large offense at all. At other times, met with seemingly more direct challenge and slights against his ministry, such as accusing him of being in league with the devil, he does not rant or rail or strike out at his enemies. Instead, he calmly warns against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So what is different about this episode? The obvious answer is that the temple is Jesus' father's house. And John certainly highlights this in recalling the quote from the 69th Psalm. The temple was sacred ground, intended for the people to come to know and be near the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring worldly commerce into the mix of what should be an entirely worshipful experience would be distracting to worshipers to say the least. It seems to me, however, that there is more to it than simply the presence of trade on the temple grounds. Think for a moment about what is being sold in the temple courts and who it is being sold to. Why are sheep oxen and pigeons being sold at the temple? Why are there money changers on temple grounds? Who needs to buy sheep, oxen, or pigeons or to change money? The central activity of worship at the temple was the sacrificial system which the Jews were commanded to follow for the atonement of sins committed in the past with particular sacrificial items commanded for particular offenses. There was even stratification within the specified sacrificial animals based on what the person offering sacrifice could afford. Pigeons were brought for sacrifice by those of low status who could not afford to own a costly animal like sheep or oxen, let alone sacrifice it if they did own one. This is one way we generally believe, for instance, that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy, because the sacrifice given by Mary to redeem Jesus as a firstborn son was a pair of turtle doves. This leads me to believe that not only was there an element of bringing the world into the temple courts through the pursuit of commerce, 
there was also a very real opportunity for exploitation going on. Anyone who came to the temple without a sacrifice, who needed to buy a sacrificial animal, would surely have been captive to the whims of the ones selling such goods. After all, we find today in our seemingly enlightened society examples of predation on the poor, especially at their point of need. It hardly seems a stretch of the imagination to think of similar abuses occurring in first century Judea. The reason there were money changers on the temple grounds was because the priests would only accept certain coinage based on the purity of the metal. For pilgrims coming from afar who likely would not have such currency ready on hand, the service of changing what they did have to the acceptable money was located on site at the temple. It is expected that they provided the service for at least some profit. All of this adds up in my mind to various causes of distraction and somewhat forcibly taking what should be a spiritual experience and bringing it crashing down to the mundane. Think about how it might affect you getting in the mind for worship if I or Father Ben had someone out in the parking lot hawking prayer books or hymnals to those who didn't bring their own. And I would expect that distraction in this environment is the best case. It is our experience and expectation that wherever business occurs, there will be those who seek to cheat and swindle their fellows. There is yet another layer to the offense, as if defiling the temple with the business of mammon or the exploitation of the sons and daughters of Israel were not enough. Let's picture for a moment where this trade was taking place. I remember when I was young and even into college years, my mental picture of this scene is that there were merchants' booths interspersed with people actively in the middle of worship. I think I may have had the impression that some of this was going on very near the Holy of Holies after I understood what that was. This image made it no question in my mind why Jesus got so angry. Clearly this foolishness had no business anywhere near holy ground. In one way, I was right in that picture, insofar as picturing people trying to worship right next to what was effectively a bazaar. Thankfully for all involved, there were no sales of sheep or oxen going on inside the buildings of the temple. That would be its very own offense. What actually took place was at least bad enough. The Greek word heron, which gets translated as temple, and which I'm probably mispronouncing, or sometimes temple courts, is one of two words used to describe the physical bounds of the temple and is widely understood in the accounts of the cleansing of the temple to refer to the court of the Gentiles. This part of the temple complex was the closest area that a non-Jewish person could approach to the temple area. It was intended as a worship space for God-fearing Gentiles those who acknowledged the God of Israel as Almighty God, but who had not become proselytes. In allowing the trade in sacrificial animals to take place in the court of the Gentiles, the priests and temple officials were obstructing one of the main purposes of the temple. As Isaiah records, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. An example of who would have been inconvenienced or displaced by this activity 
is someone like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, who would not have been allowed into the inner courts of the temple because of his being a eunuch. Not to mention all of us today. The broad offense of disrupting the worship of the Lord is therefore committed in three distinct and direct ways. First, we have the intrusion of the business of mammon into the temple. Second, is the allowance for the opportunity of exploitation of the priests and temple officials, fellow Israelites. The third offense is the prioritization of commerce and trade over the worship of the God-fearing Gentiles. With this in mind, Jesus' response to the incursion of the world against what was supposed to be holy ground makes perfect sense. When a wolf is among the sheep in their very pen, you don't ask it nicely to leave. The good shepherd runs it out with whips and zealous determination and seals the breach that let in the threat behind it. Now that we have this understanding, what can we learn from it? What does Jesus' cleansing of the temple not quite two millennia ago have to do with us as 21st century Anglican Christians in the United States of America? To me, I think that the answer is quite a bit actually. Of course, my earlier thought question about having someone in the parking lot conveniently selling prayer books as the only way to get a prayer book is ridiculous to us. We freely and readily provide access to the means for anyone to participate in worship. And I don't mean to imply or infer that we as parishioners of the Good Shepherd are at all engaging in practices like what was going on in the temple or in times past in church history when the people of God were abused for the sake of monetary gain. As I was thinking about this lesson, I kept asking myself if there were ways that we as a parish may be preventing right worship of God. And here I don't mean simple inconveniences or liturgical missteps which are momentarily distracting. I mean things which forcibly yank you out of your worship and keep you from returning to it. Honestly can't think of any, and for that I'm grateful. I think what this lesson says to us as a parish is an encouragement of sorts, that we are on the right path in our worship. We seek to limit distractions, to come to God with quiet minds and hearts, and to welcome visitors and those who are seeking to join our worship of God. One of the things that this parish has been known for, continues to be known for, and I pray will be known for long after Father Ben or I are gone, is our hospitality. Hospitality means so much to us as a parish that it is a core piece of our vision as a church. At our recent vestry retreat, we did some work clarifying our vision statement. And while some concepts were adjusted or modestly reworded, we all felt that hospitality was one word that should stay unchanged. Now, hospitality is certainly not the only way in which we can or in fact do assure that our worship is accessible to those seeking to join us in our service to God. Having said that, lacking hospitality is assuredly something that newcomers notice quickly and would likely make continuing to visit more work and less joy. After thinking about us as a parish, I asked myself generally about church and American culture. Here, I am less convinced of blamelessness. 
the biggest way in this moment that I think Christian culture is potentially making it more difficult for those not already Christians to seek and to know our Lord is the tendency within the church in America to use public politics as a surrogate for personal holiness. This isn't a slam on Christians who tend to vote for particular parties. I've preached previously that I do not think voting for a particular individual is in and of itself sinful. The error comes when I view political differences in such a way that it fundamentally affects my care for my neighbor. Maybe it shows me seeing politics as a preconceived bar for someone receiving the gospel. Or perhaps I'm more likely to be generous with grace to someone with whom I share common political views. To some of our neighbors, it may very well be that American Christians seem to believe that political affiliation either covers a multitude of sins or is the root of all evil. Finally, I examine myself to see how I might be disrupting worship, either within myself or by making it more difficult for others to join me in worship. Within myself, as we know is the case with all of us, the hazards to right worship are the three principal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. As for how I hinder my ministry to others, it is my perception that I disproportionately value head knowledge, which unfortunately sometimes leads me to neglect earnestly being present with someone and instead impressed with my insight. The remedy for all of these disruptions, whether in our church, our culture as American Christians, or within myself as a temple for the Holy Spirit, is to recall the zeal and determination our Lord shows for his Father's house. It is his desire that all should come to participate in right worship of Almighty God. If we ask for his help in prayer to drive out the things which hinder our ministry, our love of neighbor, and our worship of God, we know that he is faithful to grant what we ask in faith. This is in large part what Lent is all about, after all. In Lent, we prepare our hearts to worship the risen Lord Jesus by remembering our low estate as sinners so that we can rejoice that we have been raised up with him. Lent is an opportunity to cleanse the temple of our bodies, to remove the encroachments of the enemy from what has been reserved as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. In Lent, we pour out the baskets of the money changers and the giving of alms. We drive out the fat of sheep and oxen through fasting, and we scourge the devil, who seeks to use all of these distractions to destroy us, in prayer and the reading of scripture. I ask you this week to meditate on this scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the ways in which your worship of God is hindered, or if you have disrupted anyone else's worship through action or inaction. May this Lent be beneficial for the renewal of your heart, soul, and mind as we all seek to have zeal for our Father's house. Amen. Amen.